For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Charles Kirsch. Hi, Richard. How are you? It's good to see you again. You too. It's always such a pleasure to co-host with you. I'm glad we've been doing it more and more often. Oh, once a month at least, we're going to get together and we're going to celebrate and everything. Uh, I always begin every show. First of all, this month is ending. Can you believe it? I know. This is actually my last show of this month. Uh, and all this month, we've been celebrating authors and their books because it's National Book Blitz Month. I want to show you, Charles, just a very quick sampling of some of the authors that we've had on my platform uh, since I started doing this at the beginning of COVID. And then I want to talk a moment with you about some of the authors that you've had the good fortune of interviewing as well. Uh, yes. They are. And I celebrate you, Charles. I can celebrate everything that you have done. First of all, hello to my fellow Aquarian, your mom. How's she doing? She's doing well. Thank you. Thank you. Charles Tom and I share birthdays. Yes. (laughs) Wonderful. We got to get together to celebrate. Uh, But you, I'm sure, uh, those who see what we do here have no idea of the amount of time and energy and research it goes into putting a show like this together. Right. Uh, first of all, do you love to read? I do. I do love to read in theater books, especially. Uh-huh. Right. We're going to celebrate. Was... We're going to celebrate a few today. This show yes. came about because I asked you to pick some of your favorite authors and books, and they all said yes to you. Yes, we have a really amazing lineup today. Uh, so, who are some of the authors that you've had on the show that are not here today? Oh, that yes. You would well, there, to talk about. there are a few, a few wonderful authors. I don't get the chance to do even as many as I'd like because of all the wonderful theater books that come out every year. But let me see. I hope I won't forget anyone. I had um, three of the authors who are here today who we'll save for later, but I had uh, Liza Gennaro when she wrote her book, Making Broadway Dance. You've been on the show, yes. I had um, David Loud when he wrote his memoir, Facing the Music. Um, who else? Who else? I had Rob Schneider, who, and I know you did too, who wrote 50 Key Stage Musicals, which actually I wrote a chapter in, and that was sort of my debut as, as an author, if you will. And who else? Who else? I had um, Harvey Firestein when he published his memoir, and Bob Mackey when he published the book of his designs. So, yes, I've been lucky to have several wonderful authors. That's the name dropping there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have to go pick but up. I, but you are so wonderful at what you do. Uh, Thank you, everyone, you too. Please check out Backstage Babble. Uh, who, who's your latest interview and who's coming up that you're excited about? Oh, yes. I've got several coming up that I'm excited about. Um, a few of them are uh, Kenny Leon, the great director, uh, Michael Cerveris, um, David Henry Huang, I'm talking to in a few weeks. And then I have a special surprise for my 150th episode, which I'm coming up on, which I won't reveal yet, but I'm well, excited. nobody's watching, Charles. It's just you and me. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
So that's really wonderful. Well, we're going to jump right into it because we've got so many incredible people waiting in the wings. Uh, when I reached out to you and I said, let's celebrate the Broadway books, uh, you immediately jumped on it and you reached I out. I did, yes. <laughs> um, was there a specific criteria that you were looking for in terms of uh, who you asked to do the show today? And I asked that question because, as everyone's going to find out, we cover every area of the business in today's show today. We do. And that's sort of, to be honest, that basically was my criteria to try to have a range of guests. We have some who've written many, many theater books. We have some who this is their first theater book, and it's just a wonderful group here. I think in terms of criteria, just the most recent popular theater books that, <laughs> that came to mind. And we have some wonderful people here. So I'm going to let you bring on our first guest. Uh, why don't you, first of all, begin by telling us about the book itself before we mention the author and why this book resonates with you? Yes. Okay, great. So our first book and author that we're going to bring on, I actually have the book here with me. I wish I had all six of the books. Unfortunately, I only have three of them here with me, but I'll show them when I have them. This is the book of Broadway musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements by Peter Felicia, who's been a friend and mentor of mine for many, many years. It's a wonderful book. It's really perfect for any theater fan, theater obsessive like the two of us, because it goes into many questions about theater and has many opinions and it's structured almost like the tony awards where peter will ask a question like what is the most underappreciated musical something like that and then he'll have four nominees and a winner and great explanations for all of them so it's very funny it's very fun and we're so glad to have him here and here he is peter welcome to the Good show day. aren't you nice thank you <laughs> so we both have been very i mean uh you have been a mentor to so many people in this business, whether you think of yourself as a mentor or not, uh, because your books are frames of reference for me. I have a shelf full of your books back behind me. And uh, yes, and I do go and check these books out. Uh, Peter, where did it begin for you, the love of the theater? Um, <laughs> from My Fair Lady, uh, ironically enough. I didn't even know that they would do live shows anymore. I grew up in a very uh, working class environment. Nobody mentioned the theater. When I, um, how I got to My Fair Lady is a long story in itself, which I'll spare you. But when I literally went to the Mark Hellinger Theater in 1961, I thought I was going to see a movie. I had no idea they were doing this anymore. I mean, you know, when candles came, when electricity came in, they stopped using candles. When cars came in, they stopped using horses. I assume when film came in, they stopped doing. Um, plays. I just, it was over. You know, why would they bother doing the same thing day after day after day? So, um, so really, I was amazed. But um, it was the cast album of I Fear a Lady, which I heard after the soundtracks of Gigi and South Pacific that really cemented my love. And I am definitely a golden age person. Um, and um, it, so it's very hard for me today to uh, really get enthusiastic about very many shows. And I'm afraid the book really reflects that. Um, it seems to me whenever I'm mentioning a new musical, it seems to be something I'm criticizing rather than something I'm applauding. But anyway, we are who we are. Yes, yes. Exactly. Well, uh, go ahead, Charles. Right. Well, I was going to ask you, um, what were some of the hardest of these questions to answer? Well, it's always hard uh, when you're dealing with underrated musicals because you're wondering how many people even know what you're talking about. Um, I will admit The Fields of Ambrosia, a musical that I first saw in New Jersey in 1993, 
uh, really excited me because the premise was so unusual. There are flaws in it. I've discussed this with both writers, and uh, so I'm not uh, telling tales out of school. But nevertheless, um, was it worthwhile to even mention this musical that um, has never been produced on Broadway or off-Broadway, just um, in New Jersey here in this country, and uh, for a very short time in England where it bombed so badly, they actually had one of those... Um, if you come and you don't like it, we'll give you a money back uh, type um, ploys, uh, which didn't work either. So, so anyway, I, I really worry sometimes about being too arcane. But <laughs> as the character in Golden Rainbow says, I've got to be me. That's right. <laughs> I want to ask, when did the writing begin for you? Um, that you started and you've written. How many you written today? Well, I've written 25 books, but only eight of, eight of them have been about the theater. Uh, I've done a lot of novels for teenagers, some of which have theatrical backgrounds, and a, even a book on baseball. And baseball was really um, part of the reason this book came about, because I saw a book called The Boston Book of Sports Arguments in a bookstore. Where, you know, who was the best left fielder, Carl Yastrzemski or Ted Williams? Who was the better hockey player, Bobby Orr or Derek Sanderson was... Um, Bill Russell or uh, Larry Bird in basketball. And I thought this should happen with musicals. So that's why it happened in, in that way that uh, the book came about. I thought this should happen with musicals because we certainly have a lot of arguments that we have with people. Um, <laughs> I have a friend who, whenever you disagree with him, he says, you're crazy. Um, so, you know, I mean, really. And of uh, course you are. We all are. <laughs> oh, indeed. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Everybody has to go through stages like that, no question. But, uh, but no, it, this guy really does feel if you disagree with him, it's a sign of mental illness. So, uh, so uh, he's he's kind of hard to take at times. But anyway, you know, yes, we all have our opinions, and I do expect people to debate, dispute, and disagree. I, I, so many people have read the book said, "Oh, I can't wait to get together with you." I love the book. Oh, it was so great. However. Um, I certainly have a few issues that I want to talk about when we get together. So uh, I have that in store when I uh, have dinner or lunch or coffee with these people. Well, I want to ask before we bring on our next guest, when you sat down to write this book, I know that you had this idea based on uh, the mm -hmm. uh, baseball book. But as you were writing this book, um, did it turn out the way that you had envisioned it? Or did it take on a life of its own as you were writing it? For better or worse, it was the book that I thought I was writing from day one. And I think all the books I've done have really been that way. Um, I don't think I've uh, been forced to change horses in midstream ever. Um, so for better or worse, I mean, maybe there will be those who will say, you should have. <laughs> you should have changed. Are you kidding? Couldn't you see where you were going wrong? I may very well have gone wrong in any or all of these books, but um, no. Peter, my answer to my to them is write your own book. <laughs> That's, everybody you know, everybody should. out there, write, 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 because we're the better of it. Uh, Charles, uh, stick around, Peter. Uh, but I will. Bring on our next guest. Yes, I'm happy to. Okay, so our next guest has a unique experience among the authors we have here today, which is coming more from the fashion world than the theater world in terms of writing. But she has co-written this wonderful glossy coffee table book you see here, Designing Broadway, with the designer Derek McLean, which consists of interviews with many designers, including him, about the different sets they've designed and their processes and their anecdotes, and including several wonderful photos. So here's Isla Mel, the co-author of that book. And I'm so thrilled. Bear with me one second. I'm 
like the man behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Ayla. Welcome to the show, first of all. Yes. How are you? I'm great. I'm going to begin with the same question. Where did your love of the theater begin? And I know that you come from the world of fashion. Well, I actually come from the world of theater, believe it or not. Fashion was a detour. Um, I was an actor for 10 years as a kid. And then I sort of segued into fashion for a little bit. And I mean, I'm still there, but Broadway is my first love. Theater is what I, you know, it's in my soul. It's who I am. So I really feel like I've come home with this book. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, tell us how you chose the sets for this book, the specific shows to focus on and all that. Well, as an audience member, I feel like I have a unique, and we all do have a unique relationship with the set because you get to the show and you sort of have like a half hour where you're just sitting there looking at this set and taking in the clues that it gives you about what is going to be unfolded in front of you. And I had seen a bunch of Derek McLean shows. I saw Moulin Rouge, of course, and American Sun. And I also saw this little show called Good for Auto, which was off-Broadway at the New Group. And it didn't even look like a set. It just looked like some old room that was left over from, you know, the early 70s. And it was just amazing to me that one designer did all of these different things. So I contacted Derek and said, I think this is a great subject for a book. And it was really his great idea um, to open it up to the whole design community. And so that's where the idea came from. And what was your process like in collaborating with him? Did you split up the interviews equally or how did that go? No, um, we both wrote, but I did all the interviews, including Derek's. And then he wrote a lot of the stuff that was in between the interviews. So I, I did some of it, but he did a lot of that. So, um, but he saw everything that went into the books as I saw everything that he wrote. So we really both have a hand in everything. So it's a very 50-50 partnership. And did the book turn out the way that you had envisioned the book? Or again, did it take on a life of its own as you began to put it together? I'm sure that the interviews themselves shaped the direction of the book, but did it turn out the way that you had hoped that it would turn out? It did actually. Um, we had a very clear idea of what we wanted to accomplish when we started out. When you, you know, when you start out and you put together a table of contents, you sort of know it's a map of what you're going to do. So um, the only thing that we didn't know was the content we would get from the interviews. And luckily, we had so much good stuff that our publisher gave us extra pages because the book was supposed to be shorter, but we didn't want to cut anybody. And so fortunately, we didn't have to. Now, that's very unusual. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. congratulations to you. Uh, any other questions, Charles, before we bring our next guest? Well, I think we should bring on our next guest so we can okay. have everyone on. Um, our next guest is another writer who whose works have been foundational for so many young people, I know, including me and, and many others. And he just published a new book called Broadway Musicals on CD, A Conversational Guide. So here's Ethan Morden. Yes, let's bring Ethan on. Ethan? Welcome to the show, first of all. How are you? Thank you. Hi, I'm fine. Uh, same with Peter. Ethan, I have a shelf just devoted to you alone. Right, as uh, do I. So <laughs> I want to thank you for all the books and the detail that goes. I mean, do you have a social life? Of course. <laughs> 
Because, I mean, you, these books are so brilliant. So thank you for that, number they one. Are. You're welcome. Uh, where did your love of theater begin? This is simple. As a little kid, my parents had tons of what I call the DECA classics, Oklahoma Carousel, King and I. Also, we're moving to other labels, Kismet, Can Can. And I was just big enough at three years old to play them myself. And then the next step came, I have to see these. I knew they were shows. And my parents said, no, you're too young. And I said, I'll break my brother's arm. So they said, OK, you can see uh, King and I was the first show. And that's it. Isn't that simple? They're so marvelous. And you may have seen a movie and you certainly have seen TV, but the curtain goes up and it's actually happening. Very exciting. So that's the answer. Oh, yes. so, so you had uh, you come from a household where your parents were actually encouraging when it comes. Oh, to yes. They're, they're very cultured and they were big theater goers at the time. Even though it was a long trip, we lived in a small town in Pennsylvania and um, the roads were all dirt roads kind of thing to New York City, but they still went. Well, I want to talk specifically about your latest book. Uh, this is, this is uh, and where does this fit in as far as the number of books that you've written? Well, actually, this refers to what I just talked about, because this goes back to, as you can see by the cover, all those ancient little things. Um, these are all the show albums, and they're the cast albums, and the revival casts, and a, a soundtrack or two, and one English show that I really think is American had to be in there. And no reviews, but I included Ain't Misbehaving because it's so marvelous. And the fact is, when you're getting started... You don't know where to go because there's so much of it. There's much more than you think. Try writing a book like this and you'll find out how, how many shows there really are and how many different recordings of them. Hal Joey, Candide, Porgy and Bess. And so someone says, as often happened to me, which one should I buy? And the, the trouble is the answer is too long because this Candide has this many songs, but this one is better sung. But then don't you want Bernstein conducting himself and he turns it into masterpiece theater as opposed to, you know, just get out there and do it. So there are all these different ways of thinking, which is the one I want or could I buy two? Because in certain cases, the golden apple, there's a complete one, but there's also the original cast, which is so lively and true. The revival is a bit of a, oh, I'm going to sleep. So <laughs> what do you do? So that's what the book is about. It's 500 pages long and Amazon gives you the most beautiful white paper with, this is very important to me, big, print because I can't <laughs> anymore. So this is very exciting to me and that's what the book is. Right. Well, tell us um, some of the shows that you cover in this book as CDs are the same ones that you've covered in your decade series. And so what makes it different writing about them? Always, the thing is, you can't write a book like this off the top of your head. You got to put all the discs back on. And as you're listening, you think, I never noticed that before. For Just for an example, and it's not going to sound that important, but it's part of the book. You're listening to Candide and William Alves, who's he? The tenor. And he comes in singing the governor's song, My Love. And you're thinking... Gosh, he's good. He brings together the elitist feeling that I can do anything I want, include kill you, but right now I want to have sex. And it's all in the music in the way he sings, that kind of thing. So you bring all the, as, as you're writing the Candide section, you're thinking, why didn't I notice that before? That kind of thing. And I really think the original cast of Candide is the great one. And I saw the show and I, I was so keyed up for it. It was the last Saturday afternoon and it was the first time I was in the front row and I'd never seen drag queens before because there are drag queens in it. Um, you wouldn't know that, but in the scene where in Venice where uh, Max Adrian is going, lady frilly, lady silly, there were five women and three of them were men. 
And I didn't know what a drag queen was because I was like four years old. I knew it was something, but I wasn't quite sure what and, and how it related to me. So all of this stuff comes back to you and there's always more to write. And the reason why is there is nothing richer than a musical. I guess I should say nothing richer than a good musical. Very good. That's, that's great. When you sat down to write this particular book, are the first words that we read in the book the first words that you wrote in the book? Yes, I, I wrote it in order. I, I mean, I, I set out an outline. I had all the titles like, and I kept thinking, wait a minute, I forgot. Oh, I'll leave it out because there's too much anyway. But the point is, once you get it all set up, you've got an outline and you follow the outline. That's the best way to write. That's why I can write so many books because I, I organize them very carefully. I had a friend, in fact, who's getting into writing and he just, he thinks it's magic. You begin. And the muse is there. No, no, no. You have to outline the thing. And if you have a really good outline, the book will write itself. That's how it's done. So, I, yeah, I start in the first word and I just go right through to the end. And you've been writing for quite some time. Do your publishers give you the luxury of the length of the book or are you within a certain confine as well? Every author nowadays is confined because there's a certain amount of of um, there are the expenses, you know, the cost of paper, printing and so on. You can't just say, I will write a book. Let's find out what it is when I finish it. They won't do that kind of thing. But again, Amazon has the advantage. It's up to you. It's long, as long or as short as you want. You give them a file and they will publish it, which is one of the many reasons why I love writing for Amazon now. Ah. Good for you. That's great. But at, at Oxford, for instance, which is where I've done most of my theater books, the, you know, once you tell them it's going to be this many pages and this many pictures, you've got to stick to that because they have figured out how much it's going to cost to produce the book based on what you said. You can't veer off. You, you can't say it's turned out to be longer or it's turned out to be shorter. They want what you said you would write. Right. Yes. And the question you haven't asked yet is, what is the most startling thing I've learned in the last few years of researching these books? And the, uh, the answer is, Tennessee Williams likened um, attending an Ibsen play to eating a box of soap flakes, which I thought was the most marvelous thing I've ever heard, because nobody likes those plays anyway, except for Claire Gint, which is in a different style. You think of the wild duck and Hedda Gabler, excuse me, I'm getting on the first bus to Indianapolis, and no one has ever said that. And Tennessee Williams was big enough to say, you know, I can, I can do Emperor's New Clothes because I have nothing to lose. No one can attack me. I'm canonical now. So that's, my <laughs> that's the question I want asked and no one has asked it. So I answered it. Good for you. That, that's a great place to be. Um, Charles, do you want to bring out our next guest or do you yes, have another question I'll for Ethan? I'll be happy to bring out our next guest. And then I have a question that ties you two together. Um, our next guest wrote another wonderful coffee table, big glossy book called Moulin Rouge the Musical, The Story of the Broadway Spectacular. And in addition to that, he's also a very distinguished theater critic, as are a few of us on this panel. Here's David Cody. David Cody. We're Hello. Today. Hello. Yes. Welcome. Great to meet you. Well, so I'm going to do a reading now from my favorite Ibsen play, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Lady from the Sea. Um, <laughs> Well, so I'd love to ask a question to both you and Ethan, which is about the process of writing a book about a specific show. I know it's something you've done many times before, and Ethan, you wrote the Chicago book, which was so wonderful. And how do you approach a book like that? Uh, well, I mean, you 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 see it many, many times. You talk to the 
to the books packagers or producers you create a, a, an outline like ethan said you just don't you know you have to have a have a, a full structure in mind before you start it before you start interviewing people i mean these Books are very much dependent on the oral history of the making of the show, um, if that's how you're approaching it. Um, uh, if, it's a, if it's a new show and everyone's around to talk about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I've spent like 20 or so years in the magazine business as an editor and as a writer, which, you know, has permanently damaged me in my ability to write long forms. So, but I'm able to at least envision these coffee table books in terms of like, okay, here's the first chapter, here are the sidebars, here's the, uh, the, the, the spread on the design of wigs and uh, makeup, that sort of thing. So you're able to sort of break it down into small parts and make it, and know that the art is going to drive the uh, book as much as the narrative is. And uh, so, yeah, so you can't be too precious about this as a book book. Uh, I very humbly tell my friends, it's not a real book, it's a coffee table book. People, <laughs> some will look at it, some will read, some will look and read, if you're lucky. Um, so that's, but it's, yeah, it's it's planned down to the, the, the last page, what you have on each, on each spread. But David, I chose a photograph that I want to bring on that, it, it, I just love this photo. Uh, and look at this. <laughs> oh my God. Who did, how did that guy get in there? <laughs> <laughs> What yeah, a no, great, we, great photo. Yeah, yes. we, we went at the Rizzoli bookstore. Uh, on the east side, we had a, a signing. I got to meet Baz Luhrmann. There's Danny Burstein on the right. Yes. And Aaron DeVade on the left. It was great. The fans the fans for the show are extremely, you know, enthusiastic and lovely, warm. And, um, yeah, they even... It's great production. Yeah. I saw the show the night before the theaters shut down. Wow. wow. And then yeah. so that posed a, a big challenge, of course, to writing the, the book while also helping it, you know. And, yeah. uh, Charles, this was a two part question. Yes, yes, I want to sort of pose it to Ethan too about the process of writing a book. Actually, I would just go along with what David said. I had it easy on Chicago because it wasn't just one show, it was a silent film, then a talkie, right. you know, so on, a, a play, of course. And you have the a movie musical as well. So breaking it up into those, I had really kind of like seven small books to do. Whereas David had one big one, uh, you know, and one work, Moulin Rouge. I guess you have the movie as well, but still it, you, you're basically focusing on one large work, whereas I had these little works to do. So that's an easier book to write, to tell the truth. And then the main thing is you just go through the musical Chicago, the Bob Fosse one, step by step by step through the script and the score, just analyzing the whole thing. That's the you know, the key thing. That's what people want to know. What is special about the show? And you tell them as best you can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course, you know, it's depending on the, the emphasis uh, that you take, you, you can focus on, on, obviously on the score, on the book, on the directorial concept and all that. But, you know, there are also, there, as everyone knows, it takes a village to make a musical. And there are so many aspects of, uh, that you can go into, you know, the, the design, the, again, the wigs and costumes, the, 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 the technical aspects of the show. I mean, it's sort of endless the the amount of material to to cover once you get away from the whole like the the just the strictly the book and the score and things like that. I want to ask each of you because you just touched on this for a second, uh, uh, and I'd love to get uh, your feedback from each of you uh, on uh, the impact that COVID has had on each of you as writers. Um, uh, obviously, you're not able to go out and do the. Uh, the process, the way that you did prior to COVID. Are there things that you learned about yourself during COVID as a writer that 
you think you will carry through from this point forward? I'll start with you, David. Oh, um, <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, in a sense, I mean, you know, I, uh, what can I say? I, it, it made the job of writing easier. I, and, and, and technology being what it is, you can interview anybody anywhere. And um, uh, I missed live theater. What can I say? I, 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 didn't, I didn't have a transformative personal experience. I mean, if anything, I'm, I'm appalled and, and, and in wonder and horror that, that there was death on such a huge scale that I uh, didn't personally experience, um, you know, the, 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 the extent to which I was insulated from this, from this mass casualty event is what shocked me more than anything. Wow. Ethan? Uh, actually, in my case, it did um, affect me greatly because I couldn't go to my favorite haunt, the third floor of Lincoln Center Library, and do my research there. You know, that's an incredible resource. And yes. you can't, there are certain um, books that if you can't get up there because it was closed for the virus. You can't do the book. So that's why Broadway Musicals on CD was so handy because I just sat home listening to records. Ila? Ila. Um, Ila, I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, so I wrote most of this book during COVID and I had 70 people to interview. And what COVID did was it created a situation where people were available to speak and, right. and we're happy to have something to do. Um, so that that was a plus, you know, if there was anything good about that whole situation. Right. And, and I know Richard and I have benefited from that as well. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Peter? Well, for one thing, I did a lot of walking and lost 40 pounds. So that That's was cute. a very good thing. Um, so uh, I, I concentrated on that. No, I, um, I wrote uh, a number of plays, some of which have gotten done here, there, and uh, not everywhere. But um, I decided to do that. And um, so uh, one was just done up in um, Sullivan County, New York. Um, supposedly, there'll be a production in Manassas, Virginia in August. You've heard of April of Paris. This is Manassas in August. And uh, that's where I'll be. And uh, another production of another one is scheduled for Boca Raton in uh, November. So I, I turn to playwriting, and then we'll see how that plays out. Right. Well, David, before we bring our next guest on, I would love to ask you, with Between Moulin Rouge, Wicked Jersey Boys, and Spring Awakening, were all of them or any of them your idea, or were they pitched to you? How did that go? They were they, they're all pitched to me. It's sort of a show has to have a certain momentum going for the uh, for producers or bookmakers, publishers to invest in such a, a costly endeavor. So, yeah, it was I mean, I, I was very lucky that Alex Timbers, the director of Moulin Rouge, put me up for the, the job. I had been covering his work, you know, off off Broadway for, for years. And so I have him to thank for, for the job. And uh, Carmen Pavlovich, who was a tremendously, uh, you know, I didn't know if this book would survive the pandemic, frankly, you know, but uh, it did. It was wonderful. Well, congratulations to all of you. Uh, Charles? Yes, well, so I'd love to bring on our next, our penultimate guest for today, who is another extremely prolific theater author, as well as publication editor and all of that, which is Robert Viagas, who has really a book that came out very recently and an upcoming book. His upcoming book is Right This Way, History of the Audience, and his most recent book is Good Morning, Olive, about theater ghosts and, and all of those stories. Both are wonderful. I've had a chance to read both and what can I say? <laughs> They're perfect for, for theater fans. So Robert, thank you for being here. Yes, thank, thank you, you. gentlemen. It's it is really an honor to be in this company. I mean look at the look at these people. These are these are amazing people. 
So thank you. Thank you for including me in all of this. So Robert, I'm waiting for your book to arrive. I cannot wait because uh, right. you went from a completely different- This is the one that's coming, the ghost oh, book, Good Morning Olive, named for Olive Thomas, who haunts the New Amsterdam Theater. Ah. But we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, right this way. <laughs> I love the fact that you wrote for the point of view of the audience. Uh, that's never been done before. As well, I've, I've always loved being part of an audience. You know, people always say, well, why aren't you? Have you ever wanted to be an actor? Uh, I did do some acting in high school, H. Frank Carey High School. Um, I And they said, well, or a playwright or something like that. You know something? I love being part of an audience. The audience experience is so exciting to me. I feel so involved and I feel like, I, I have to tell you, kind of my central uh the central theory of this book is that theater does not happen on the stage. What happens on the stage is designed to evoke theater. Theater happens in the hearts of the audience. What happens on stage is designed to create theater inside of you. And I've done a hit this history going all the way back to the Greeks, going right up to Zoom in the present. And I cover not just uh, the theater, I cover uh, all audiences, all types of audiences, because they have a lot in common and they have a lot of differences. Uh, just being in that audience experience. And it's interesting, you know, we, we train people to be actors. We train people to be writers. Uh -huh. We don't train people to be audiences. We expect you to be an amateur when you walk into the theater, except if well, you're- perhaps they should in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> they should have audience studies. And I actually have, I have a curriculum that I could sell. Anybody's interested, audience studies curriculum, how to be an audience. Mm -hmm. I want to join you on that. Please and, do. Uh, we'll bring Charles along too, and anyone else who's interested. I'd love that. What was the impetus for this book, however? A, a number of different things. Um, and I have to say, having sat and I've, uh, I've certainly, some of the other people on this panel have me way beat on this. I stopped counting my Broadway shows after 2000 Broadway shows. So I've sat in a lot of different audiences, but every year, and this is coming up is going to be my 44th time. I go up to Boston and I watch the uh, Boston uh, Marathon of Science Fiction Movies, because I also love science fiction. Yes. And the audience is so lively. The audience, when the villain comes out, the audience, they hiss the audience. As a matter of fact, we are invited to bring along our ray guns to shoot the bad guys when they come on the screen. Uh, it is just a wonderful audience experience. And I started to think to myself, you know, I should really write about what it's like to be in an audience and and hissing the villain like they did in the old days and cheering. And whenever there's a countdown, which I have to tell you, in science fiction movies, there's a lot of countdowns. The whole <laughs> audience counts down along with it. And I'm, one of the things that interests me is different audiences have different expectations. If you don't cheer at this marathon, they're like, what's the matter with you? Don't you like the what? Well, don't you like the movies? Whereas if you're at a symphony or you're at a Broadway show and you start talking, and if you were to start shooting the bad guys and at a Broadway show, they'd say, what's the matter? Don't you like the show? So it's it, it's and like sports audiences, they expect you to yell and cheer and curse at the uh, at the pitcher and things like that. Can you imagine if they did that at a Broadway show? I mean, how do you, well, in some shows they do. You? <laughs> now she's not and doesn't do stage anymore. So now I guess I guess these people are safe. Well, Charles, so, do you have a question? Because I've got a, a question waiting uh, as well. I do. Yes. Well, so tell us what are some of the oddest audience reactions you've seen in a Broadway theater? 
Oh well, uh, you know, I saw a production of Shogun where the uh, stage, where the set collapsed on the main actor, and people were just sitting there and watching this thing collapse on the actor. And, and after it fell on him, we were looking at each other and they're like, "Was that part of the show? Are we supposed to be alarmed by this? Are we not supposed to be alarmed by this?" Um, you know, um, uh, people, people. I, I went to see a production of Peter Pan at the Gershwin Theater. It was the revival of Peter Pan. And um, uh, during intermission, one of the little girls had eaten way too much chocolate. And she tr and during the second act, she got an upset stomach and she was trying to get out of, the, of her seat. Didn't quite make it. Threw up down the back of my shirt. Uh -huh. um, uh, and I have to say that I've never had that experience before. I hope <laughs> I never have it again. Well, uh, it one that's worse. Uh, it's a live audience. If I were sitting in my... In my living room, uh, I wouldn't have had this highly fragrant uh, experience in the theater. But, you know, also, you know, the, 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 when an audience loves something, you're in an audience and they love it. Right. And they there's a there's a cheer. It's almost like a physical sensation of the cheering and the clapping. I saw up at Encores, they did Little Shop of Horrors. And uh, when the, the cast came out and, the, and when they sang uh, Suddenly Seymour, the reaction at the end of Suddenly Seymour, I felt like the theater was going to explode. When I saw Dreamgirls, and if you remember at the end of the first act, she sings, and I'm telling you, I'm not going. I had gotten a cheap seat. And so I was literally sitting in the last row of the top balcony at the Imperial Theater. And when she finished singing that song, I thought that the ceiling of the theater was going to burst out into the, the sky over 45th Street. Uh, when you're part of an experience like that, you know, it's hard to tell people about an experience like that. But being in an audience and sitting all the way in the back and still, still having that experience uh, was just it was just amazing to me. I needed to write about it. And I want to bring on our next guest who's been waiting so patiently <laughs> in the wings. But Sally Struthers said that when she was doing Grease, the revival, uh, a man sitting in the front row leaned over into the orchestra pit and threw up. So they, <laughs> they had to keep no, going. So it it happens. I, I have a, I, I know, I know we want to get to the last guest. I don't want to shortchange the last guest, but in part of my research, I went to the national archives and I got accounts of people who were in the theater the night Lincoln was assassinated. Uh -huh. And they talked about seeing his weary face and hearing his laughter and the audience feeling so excited to, to hear the president uh, see the president in live in person and hearing his laughter after the Civil War had only ended four days earlier. And he decided to go, by the way, our American cousin is Ted Lasso. It's the same story. It's the, <laughs> seriously. Um, but but going and then watching him be assassinated and hearing the gunshot. And one of the people, uh, uh, one of my accounts is a guy who was sitting right under the the uh, a box where Lincoln was shot and um, Booth jumped to the stage and and said six semper tyrannis and ran off. And this guy jumped up out of his seat and tried to chase down uh, a Booth. And he says, you know, uh, I wasn't able to the uh, uh, Mr. Booth knew his way through around the theater in a way I did not. But I managed to get the scoundrel's hat. Mm -hmm. Wow. This was this audience guy. He managed to get Booth's hat, and he felt like he had, you know, done a little something to get back uh, for for the uh, 
the horror of seeing Lincoln assassinated. So I, the book is filled with stories like this. So I'm going to let you get to the next guy because I don't want him to be shortchanged. Go. No, no, we're going to, everyone's going to get equal time here. And, okay. we're gonna, and then we're going to have a roundtable discussion about creativity. Uh, so Charles, uh, tell them about our next guest. Yes, our next and final guest is Kasim Gaines, who is the author of this wonderful new book, When Broadway Was Black, that I have here, which is a revised and updated version of his book, Footnotes. I recommend buying both, not just one, why not both? They're both so wonderful and such a great account of UB Blake and Shuffle Along and all of that. So thank you for joining us today. Kasim, thank you for your patience. No problem, no problem. I've been enjoying uh, listening to all the conversation. It's great. So, Kasim, uh, you take us back to Shuffle Along and the impact that that had uh, on Broadway at the time of its opening. Uh, if you can take us back there uh, and give us a Reader's Digest version of that time and what brought you into writing this story. Sure. So I think what was really um, interesting, I, I missed out on the COVID question, but it's funny because... I actually was writing the majority of the book during the lockdown as well. And the parallels between when I was writing in 2020 and what I was writing about in terms of like, was just sort of, I feel like I have to get you. <laughs> um, but was sort of fascinating because Shuffle Along was produced in the aftermath of the Spanish flu pandemic that shuttered theaters. Um, New York's economy was decimated. Uh, it was the prohibition era. And I don't think a lot of people realize that it didn't just create a lot of speakeasies and you know the rise of the flapper, but also so much of New York's economy came from the legal sale of alcohol. And now that was off the table, New York's economy was just in shambles. Um, it was also the greatest period of racialized violence in this country since the Civil War. The Tulsa Race Massacre was just one week after Shuffle Along opened on Broadway. And yet in this landscape, this musical produced on less than a shoestring, they were $21,000 shy of even having a shoestring on opening night. And yet it became the biggest sensation of 1921. And not just that, but it led to this period of renaissance, not only of black musicals on Broadway, but Langston Hughes in his memoir, credit shuffle along with kickstarting the Harlem Renaissance, with bringing people to, with bringing black people in particular to New York and creating an art scene where white theater goers would then go slumming it uptown and continue the party. So um, it was kind of fascinating to write this book during that period. And it just felt like while theater people know about shuffle along or most theater people know about shuffle along, it's not a show that we think about in the same regard as a showboat or Porgy and Bess or even Carmen, like as something that like really is a, a moment for racial representation. Um, and when I say we think about it, I mean the mainstream population. You know, Why think, do you think that is? Do you have a theory on that? I think there are lots of reasons. Um, I, think, I think there are lots of reasons for that. I think part of it is that Shuffle Along was so revolutionary that it wasn't, it didn't take very long for it to be co-opted. I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to say uh, Gershwin, you know, lifted from UB Blake's score um, per se, but, um, 
but I will say that there are people who say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I will say that there that's, are people. That's a good way of getting around. <laughs> Hold on. Um, Hold you on. know, there it's you know even if you look at something like the Charleston, which obviously was a dance craze that took over the nation, that comes from Running Wild, which is a follow up in a lot of ways to Shuffle Along. Um, so I think you know it's it's like in any medium, right? Like the person who does it first is recognized in real time, but then it doesn't take very long for people to forget who was the first one to do it. Um, I think that's part of it. And I think the other thing with Shuffle Along that's really interesting is, you know, there were a couple of revivals. There was a revival in 1932, um, Shuffle Along of 1933, but it was in 1932. They were very optimistic. It didn't make it to 33. Um, and there was a, a revival in 52 that lasted only four performances total. And what you start to see by the 52 production is the black community actually saying, you know, this show has some racial stereotypes that we find to be problematic. This isn't a show that we should sort of remember. We thankfully theater has moved on and representation in theater has moved on since Shuffle Along in 21. And there's almost a little bit of a concerted effort to put the show in the vault and it stayed there I, I think you could argue um, until George C. Wolf sort of opened that vault back up in 2016. Right. What was the seed initially that uh, brought you into wanting to tell this story? So um, by complete accident or, or just chance, I should say, I, I had a, um, I procured a ticket to the 98th performance of George C. Wolf Shuffle Along at 98 of 100. So it was the day before it closed, and then there were two more performances the next day. And I was in the audience, I'm talking about audience experiences, I was in the audience for a talkback uh, after the show, and it was Brian Stokes Mitchell, actually, who said, um, you know, he was so happy to be doing this show, but could not believe that a show that was trying to remind people of this watershed moment that shouldn't have been forgotten was now closing without a cast album um, without a, rec a, a, a recording besides what's available at Lincoln Center, without a published libretto that basically, you know, after 10 Tony Award nominations and 100 performances, the 2016 Shuffle Along, a, a lot of people don't even remember that it existed. It had kind of the misfortune of being in what I think is a great year for Broadway, but it also was the Hamilton year, of course. Um, so sitting in the audience and, and listening to this and just realizing as a writer, there are things that all of us can do in 500 something pages or, or however many pages that you can't necessarily do in a dramatized, you know, somewhat you know, creative licenses are taken with a two and a half hour musical that George C. Wolf did. Um, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but it's a different medium. But mm -hmm. as a writer and journalist, um, I felt like I had a responsibility to sort of help preserve this history in any way I could. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for yes. putting it out there. And you speak in your epilogue, you tell the story about how Shuffle Along was deemed unproducible by Jack Viertel at Encores in, in the 2000s. And what do you think it is about the show that would make it not go over well today for those who don't oh, know? It? Charles, I love that question because that's one of my... Oh, did he I, freeze? I think so, unfortunately. Yeah. 
I guess this is bound to happen uh, sometimes. Christine, uh, what might help is for you to leave and come back in if you sometimes that helps because I definitely want to hear the answer to this question. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. And so while we're waiting, I would love to extend the same question I asked to Robert to everyone else on our panel about unusual audience experiences they've seen happen. I know, Peter, you've seen many, many productions over the years and you must have some stories. One of the things that really fascinated me was the original production of Working, um, because there's a song that a school teacher sings. And I saw the show um, on successive performances. And the first time I saw the show, the audience sat there dolefully listening to this woman tell of her problems and feeling so bad for her about how difficult it is to be a teacher, especially when you're getting older and they're expecting a lot of changes. The next night I went, uh, because I really thought the show was worth seeing more than once, the audience thought it was the hilarious song. They thought it was so funny. What an idiot she is, so on and so forth. So it really is something to think that um, people could have such a different reaction. What I loved about the 2001 revival of the Rocky Horror Show is that they honored their audience. They, um, I, I worried what was going to happen. when people going to throw rice? We're going to start cigarette lighters. They actually had a section of the theater that represented the audience, and they had people actually playing audience members, as well as um, mannequins uh, sitting there, too. But they really let it be known that we wouldn't be anything if it weren't for you. And as worried as I was that the audience was going to go out of control, they asked for it because they started off by saying, give me an R, R, give me an O, O. You know, all right, you're you're in entering audience participation into evidence right then and there. So I thought that was really, really something. And the audience basically behaved, I think because they were given permission, if they were told, you can't do this, you can't do that, I think there would have been some mavericks. But um, those two things come to mind immediately. There are others, but I'll let others talk. And does anyone else have any stories like that? Well, I will say this. Over the years, I've heard a lot of actors say they hate Friday night shows, that the audience is completely different on Friday night. They've worked a whole week. They're tired. A lot of times they'll come in uh, intoxicated, and they will they feel that the audience is uh, – a lot of times it's um, – um, uh, they've been brought there by, uh, on a business uh, deal, and they're they're not a lively audience. Whereas, uh, and of course, matinees that tends to be kind of older audiences. So, actors that I've spoken to over the years have said that they really feel, as as Peter said, that that, that not only will the performers give a different of a different show on different nights, but the audience responds in a different way on different nights. Robert, I have a question for you. Um, those of us, I mean, all of us here uh, who love going to the theater, I also love the experience of being uh, with an audience that is there as a collective uh, with what's going on in front of them. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, as we all know, there are people that are on their phones, they're doing other things, they're uh, having conversations. Lots of things are going on in that audience. Based on all of your research, when do you think the biggest shift began to happen in terms of audience etiquette in the Broadway theater? Well, uh, you know, a lot of people, they're used to watching now uh, television and they're used to responding in a different way. I find that people laugh more at, at the theater when they're part of an audience. Uh, it's funny, my wife and I, when we sit and watch uh, television, 
I laugh a lot. When there's a funny joke, I laugh and she just looks at me. It's not that she doesn't have a sense of humor. When we're at the theater, she laughs a lot more. When you're part of a group, it's... Uh, I have a quote in the book. Uh, uh, someone famous once said that um, audiences, uh, that individuals in the audience don't know what they're talking about. They're idiots. But as a group, they're the smartest people in the world. And they will always uh, tell you about the show something much better than an individual will tell you about the show. Sitting back there, listening to the audience reaction, which is why they had previews in the old days. They wanted to hear the and tryouts out of town. They wanted to hear how an audience reacted. Uh, but if you talk to an individual person, they'll always give you bad advice. They'll always give you a useless piece of, of, of response. But as a collective, and that's part of what it's like being in an audience. You are responding not just as yourself, you're responding as a collective. Right. It's also interesting to, um, I mean, I've been on both sides of the, you know, love it or not sure, so sure I love it reaction to really pre-enthusiastic crowds of certain shows. Like I remember Be More Chill and Six when I went to review them. Mm -hmm. I knew a little bit about them. I mean, I used to want to go in fairly fresh. And the, and the crowds at those shows were, were acting like it was already a, a cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. because of the virality of the, of the support of the music already. And so as a critic, you know, not to be too curmudgeonly, but as a critic, it's like, what the hell? You know, it's like, well, let the well, show open and be reviewed. And, but, you know, but then again, at Moulin Rouge, you have, a, you have a, the excitement of recognition in the audience because these songs are so well known to people so they it's designed to deliver that dopamine to the uh, to the audience right. so you know there's nothing good or bad about it per se but it is interesting to see audiences pre so prepared to love a thing you know well look at k-pop did you, i don't know if anybody i'm sure peter saw k-pop i'm sure yeah, i saw it was interesting it was interesting to see that like maybe a third of the audience was having the time of their lives. They were clapping and screaming and, and dancing in their seats. And another third of the audience was kind of confused. And another third of the audience, they were hostile. They were like, what is this crap? And I can't understand a word they're saying. Why don't they speak English? <laughs> um, it, it, and so it was just fascinating to sit there and be part of that audience. I remember seeing um, Sondheim's um, Passion. And I was sitting next to a couple and they hated the show. They hated it. And were like, oh, this is awful. This is terrible. I was having a wonderful time. And so I actually turned to them and said, if you really don't like the show, either be quiet or leave. And they left. God bless them. They left. It's so interesting the way different people will respond in, in, in a group situation like that. And uh, I, I, never, I never get tired of it. I, I Sometimes when I'm watching a show, I'll turn around just to see everybody's faces because I when you're that. facing the stage, you I can always turn around and, uh, the husband's and, asleep. See the, yeah. and see <laughs> how people, what people are looking like when they're, when a if I know a really good joke is coming, I'll turn around just to see how people are going to respond to it. <laughs> that's what, by the way, that's what uh, John Wilkes Booth uh, did. He knew the play so well that's that right. he knew that, that there was a line that would get a huge, huge laugh. And that's when he was going to shoot Lincoln because he wanted it to kind of hover up the sound of the gunshot and so he sat there and waited until the funny line was spoken you know i i it's audiences are just uh, they're amazing creatures they're amazing um beings uh it's an amazing state of uh, the the greeks believed that that going to the theater was important not only for your 
your mental health, but for your social health. They, be they believed in something called catharsis, spelled with a K, mm -hmm. that you needed to go and you needed to get the negative emotions out. And that's why you went to see a tragedy. And it made you healthier. It made you- And with other people. And it made you a better person for, to sit there yeah. and to cry your eyes out or to be torn apart by the horror of, of somebody destroying themselves. Whereas you go to a comedy to become a worse person, I think. That's <laughs> 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 uh, I have a question that I want to ask again, each of you, um, and we may go over just a few moments. Um, uh, but I want to ask each of you, uh, you're all avid theater goers. Uh, we all have we all have that enthusiasm of going to the theater. Um, Charles, I'll start with you on this question. Um, a you, I guess, uh, I can easily say the youngest person on this panel. Um, a particular performance that really was like a shot of adrenaline through your entire system. Uh, a performance that will stay with you your entire life. That is a great question. Let me think about that. Well, I would say, starting with sort of the most recent one, because that's what comes to mind first, I would have to say it was probably John David Washington in this most recent revival of The Piano Lesson, which I read in books and accounts and things like that of having this experience of seeing a performer sort of come onto the stage like a hurricane and just light up everything. And I felt like I hadn't known quite what that sensation sort of felt like until seeing that performance, because it was really right from the start, it was just like a ball of energy that lit up the whole play and never diminished as it went on. So I thought that was an amazing performance and one that I hope is recognized by awards and everything, even though it's closing earlier in the season. Yes. Everyone hold that thought in the back of your heads. Cassine, welcome back. Welcome back. I was pulled through the vortex, but I, I didn't miss a beat in the conversation because I was able to watch the stream. So I'm all caught up with where everyone oh, is. Oh, good. So, Charles, you were asking a question before everything yes. shut down. So yes, you can yes, go back to Cassine. Um, about why you felt and Jack Viertel felt and everyone that Shuffle Along was unproducible? Sure. So, yeah, um, thanks. And, and sorry to, to backtrack everyone in the conversation, but this was sort of a fascinating point um, in the book and in my research because there was a... Jack Viertel was considering doing Shuffle Along for Encores. And um, he was very excited about doing this, but also had some trepidation. Um, the idea was that... He wanted, of course, to honor the show and the legacy of the Black performers that staged it. But the show does traffic in some um, dialectical humor, some antebellum humor. Um, the original production, there were uh, a couple of characters, not, not most even, but there were a couple of characters who were Black actors in Blackface. And so he was concerned that uh, uh, there is something out there that does not want this story to be told. Yes. Uh, the, I want it to be told. Uh, Robert, your uh, next book about the ghost of the theater, I think, <laughs> we've, got a, I think we've got a few right here. <laughs> right. So I hope that Cassie will make it back. You know, So I want to hear this. Yes. Uh, but while we're waiting for him to come back, Peter, same question uh, that I asked Charles, uh, a performance that just was like a, 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 sh a shot of adrenaline through your body. 
while I view William Daniels' performance in 1776, the best I've ever seen, an actor given a musical, and while in second place, Zero Mostel in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way of the Forum, within the first three months of his doing it, when he wasn't fooling around yet, what really answers this question is Robert Lindsay and Me and My Girl. Because I am telling you, he is a person who is from a lower class, the character Bill Snipson is from a lower class background, and he has inherited this money. And he comes into a castle where all these highfalutin uh, royal regal people are. And he came in hat in hand, so meek, so mild. And we have all been in that position where we've entered a room and we feel inferior to somebody. We, uh, All of us have had that. And this is what he expressed. And we felt so bad for this guy who did not know how to behave in this group. He just wasn't sure if when he put his thumb up as if to say everything's all right, or was that low class? Oh, I wonder. Hmm. Every other production I have seen in Me and My Girl, and by the way, this includes the people who succeeded Robert Lindsay on Broadway, came in, ha ha, how you doing? You know, that type of feeling. And you, you actually wanted them, them taken down a peg. So mm -hmm. the difference between Robert Lindsay's shy performance that we could all identify with was something that really made the show very special to me. And every time I see me and my girl, I hope somebody is going to do it that way. And nobody, nobody in the nine productions I've seen or the nine performances I've seen <laughs> has ever done that. And the show really misses a lot by doing that um, approach. What a great point. Uh, David? So this is the, this is a great performances. Yes, you know, a, a performance that really I was like a shot of adrenaline through your. Oh God, um, I'm just gonna you know pick Christy Nebersall in um, in Grey Gardens. Uh, that musical just was you know very dear to me. Uh, you know it's one of those shows that has a couple numbers in it that always make you cry. Um, mm -hmm. You know around the world, another winter in a summer town. Uh, it's a great score, great show. Uh, I've always loved it. I mean, it's one of you know one of my favorite musicals over the past twenty years. And, and Christine Ebersol, who is producing such a pure sound anymore? I mean, it's just, what a voice! What a voice! Uh, her latest CD, by the way, after mm -hmm. the fall, get it. Every one of you get the I just uh, uploaded or downloaded it, whatever it is, and it's just exquisite. Uh, Ethan. Yeah, I'm going to take something way off base. Ethel Merman in Happy Hunting. I was very young, and it was the first time I noticed some incredibly powerful personality just coming right over the footlights. She didn't just, um, everyone knows she was this great singer, but it was more than that. The energy level was incredibly high. She would drive her shows. But this one more, I've seen her in other shows later, but this one, she really kind of pushed it along. I think she felt as actually the unnamed producer of it, that it needed pushing because it has the strangest book on earth. Although it has a great set of Ethel Merman numbers, the other numbers are completely, you know, snoozeworthy. But the, the, the strength of personality, and granted, it, this is not like Alfred Drake and Keene, a great acting role, you know, and, and great singing acting role. This is musical comedy at its, I won't say best, I don't know what to call it, but it was so powerful and intense that it left a mark on me. And even though this was like 8,000 years ago, I still remember the show very, very well. I could perform most of it for you if you want to do the chorus and so on. Well, we're ready. That kind of thing. But the point is even, uh, the thrill was you'd always have the album and then you'd see the show. And sometimes a, a song would turn up that was not on the album. In this case, it was a, a Ziegfeldian showgirl number called For Love or Money. It was all the chorus girls in bathing suits on, on shipboard. 
And I sat there thinking, this is the worst song I've ever heard. But it's interesting to see them kind of moving around and being beautiful and cute. And it, you know, this is the kind of music we don't have anymore. But there are all these odd little, the flotsam and jetsam of musical comedies in, in, those, in those days. And then binding it all together is this incredible personality. When she was singing that song, Mr. Livingston, it started in a book scene and then she came forward, the traveler curtain closed behind her and she kept on singing the song. And nowadays people would say, where is she? Where is this taking place? In those days, people didn't care. It was Ethel Merman singing this great song. So that's my answer. That was the first time I noticed the power of personality, the, these eccentric the, the, these people that you couldn't have gone to high school with. They were from a different planet. And that's what made musical comedy, not musical plays. You wouldn't want someone in, like that in Carousel or Oklahoma kind of thing. That This was for the, the feel-good crazy show. And mm -hmm. they were feel-good and crazy. And that was the first time I noticed it. So that's my answer from the Blue Blue Sky. Wow. I, I've got to jump in here. I'll do it very quickly. But in 1991, I was in Sydney, Australia, and I went to see Anything Goes. And I am telling you, when the woman came on stage as Reno Sweeney, she just came on stage. And I said, oh, my God, this is a star. And it turned out to be one. Geraldine Turner, a big deal mm. there. Oh, yes, yeah, she is great. And I am telling you, all she had to do was enter. And I knew she was sensational. Mm. That's great. I feel that every time you walk into a room, Peter, uh, so just to let you know, uh, I'm just putting it out there. Isla? Sure. Um, this is easy for me. It was Lynn Cariou in a show called The Speed of Darkness. And I don't know if anyone even remembers that show, but his performance was just incredible. The journey he took you on from the beginning to the end was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I, at that point, only really knew him as Sweeney Todd. And this was so different. Um, every time I see a show, I hope to see a performance that exciting. That's incredible. Wow. That's great. Uh, Robert? Um, I would have to say, uh, one of the first shows that I saw, my parents took me to see The Fantastics. And uh, there's a scene in The Fantastics where uh, the old actor portrays himself as somebody who knows Shakespeare inside and out. So El Gallo says, well, do a speech from, uh, do a speech from Shakespeare. And the old actor is stopped he doesn't he doesn't know what to do so he puts together bits and pieces of different uh scenes from shakespeare and at one point he says uh screw your courage to the sticking place and it got a i was 12 and it got a huge laugh from the audience why because it sounds dirty um and I, I was like, I don't, I didn't know what he was talking about. So afterward on the way home, I said to my parents, what did he mean when he said, screw your courage to the sticking place? Why did that get such a big laugh? And my parents, who obviously thought it was also a dirty line, said, we'll tell you when you're older. Uh, <laughs> and I thought to myself, theater is full of secrets, <laughs> good secrets that I need to find out. I need to learn all these secrets. And I have to tell you that that really has motivated that that show has motivated my uh, interest in theater to find out all the secrets that are in all the shows. As a matter of fact, I went back and I wrote a book about the Fantastics and I became friends with Tom Jones, who wrote that line. And uh, he, I have to tell you, was uh, pretty pleased by the fact that this complete misunderstanding of his comedy scene uh, would have motivated somebody's career. Well, congratulations and thank you, Tom Jones. Mm -hmm. uh, Charles, do you have any questions before we begin to wrap everything up? 
I don't, but I would like to um, promote some of the things that everyone here is doing coming up. I hope so, absolutely. Um, And just let everybody know, if you send me links, I will put all those links on my YouTube channel. That's true. I know um, Ethan has a book coming out in June called Gaze on Broadway that sounds wonderful for Pride Month, I'm assuming. And Peter has a book of quiz questions that I know from hearing them on his podcast, Broadway Radio, are fascinating and very challenging. Um, Eyeliner is co-running this campaign with Carol Burnett to get the Majestic Theater renamed after Hal Prince, which I personally think is a wonderful idea too. Um, I know David writes reviews for Time Out that you can find all the time. Oh, not anymore. Not for five years, Um, but I'm at The Observer and at a place called Four Columns as well. Right, and Robert has his two books that we mentioned. So, and then if anyone has anything else they like, to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and Charles Hurst came out last fall this summer. <laughs> so Charles Kirsch, Backstage Babble, everybody, right. everybody, everybody. Charles, uh, we'll do this again uh, sometime next month. Yes. Um, thank you all for the gifts that you've given uh, to all of us and will continue to give. I mean, the great thing about a book is these books will be there. I read something very interesting the other day that as a writer, uh, when you're writing, you're writing in the moment. But you hope that 40 years from now that people will be able to go back to these books and refer to these books as textbooks and learn about a world that I came to New York uh, long before you were born, Charles. Uh, 1979, first Broadway show I saw was Oklahoma at the Palace Theater with Christine Ebersole uh, and uh, fell in love with her at that moment and have been a fan ever since. I've seen everything she's done uh, on the Broadway stage since then. Um, How lucky we are that we have these books and that we have each other. My request for all of you is to keep writing, keep our shelves full, keep sharing these stories with us. Uh, I'm gonna give my closing remarks And then I'm gonna give each of you a chance to give your closing remarks. It could be about anything that we spoke about today that you wanna build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you wanna leave with everyone. Uh, I do wanna say, I hope that all of you will come back at any time. You always have a platform here to promote. Uh, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Treat them to the theater. Treat them to one of these books. All of these books are available on your favorite platforms. If they're not, call those platforms, write to those platforms, and request that these books be available there. It's very important. Uh, I have a friend, and he says, we're all in this together. We're all in the same storm. But we're in different sized boats. Some are in canoes, some are in yachts, some are in sailboats, some are like Fanny Bryce pushing a tugboat upstream. It doesn't really matter what size boat you're on. Just make sure that whatever boat you're on, you have a skipper by your side. (laughs) I'm going to leave the screen. I'm going to turn it over to you, Peter. When you finish speaking, you'll pick the next person. And I'd like Charles to have the final word today. So everyone, uh, Peter Felicia, thank you. 
Well, uh, Robert mentioning the Fantastics uh, came to mind. Uh, one of the last times I went to the Sullivan Street Playhouse, of course, there'd been a lot of talk about all the difficulties with the word rape in the show and how it would affect people and um, all that went with that. So it became abduction and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, here's my point. So there's a little girl in the audience and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, I wonder if her parents know about this um, controversy with rape and all that. But in the middle of the second act, there's a reference to Pirate's booty. And the little girl turned to her parents and said, that's dirty. Because the <laughs> word booty today has a completely different meaning to kids than Pirate's booty. <gasps> Robert? Uh, I just wanted to uh, say that how much the audience has changed in the, in the even in the years I've been going to see shows. There are shows that they were able to do then that they're that they could not in a million years do now. Look, a hundred years back, if you did, uh, if you were in vaudeville and you did a dirty joke, uh, you could be blackballed. That would be the end of your career. But all the vaudeville acts were people doing um, ethnic humor. They would do accents. They, I mean, look at Chico Marx doing the, his Italian character. There were a, they used to. They, very popular was um, hair lip. Uh, performing, you talk like this, and that they, people thought that was hilarious, and it's horrifying today. It's amazing how much the audience has changed in a hundred years because now on sitcoms, little kids tell dirty jokes and everybody laughs. But if you tell an ethnic joke or wear blackface, which at one time was the most popular uh, form of entertainment in the country through minstrel shows, nowadays now that will be the end of your career. So audiences uh, to me are just so interesting. Uh, I wish that the the other gentleman who was uh, here was is able to do was able to eventually is able to do a show with you. You should really have him on because his book is just fascinating. And a lot of it does have to do with the audience. So I, I would love to have given some of my time to him uh, and let him wave his hands instead of me. <laughs> right. And who would you like to? I would like to uh, uh, Isla. I'd like to uh, to hear about your uh, the, the book that you worked on. Well, I feel like my book is sort of a cousin to David's book because we have a big Moulin Rouge section. And of course, Derek McLean designed Moulin Rouge. Um, but, I, you know, I'm excited to be working on a new book that I'll, mm -hmm. I'll give you a little exclusive on. I'm working with the American Theater Wing to do a celebration of 75 years of Tony Awards. Oh, how so wonderful. So that's very exciting. And then I just wanted to um, to let people know that I do a podcast ca called Jiffy Pop Culture. And we primarily discuss movies, but it's actually a secret Broadway podcast. Uh, we have an episode on Texas Chainsaw Massacre where we spend like 20 minutes discussing Agnes of God. <laughs> so it's very eclectic. And then who would you like to? Well, Ethan. Okay, I, I'm going to just, since we're talking about books, the last theater book that I really enjoyed was Shy, The Memoirs of Mary Rogers. I thought this was such a wonderful way to do it. A lot of people don't like it, of course, but I'm not talking about that. They got Jesse Green to kind of superintend. And if you knew Mary, the book really captures that sort of ambivalence she had about everything that was fronted by a sort of playful, um, mean girl, sophisticate sort of um, front. And it really captures what she was like. I think if you liked Mary, you would like the book. 
And if you didn't like Mary, you wouldn't like the book. But I thought it was a wonderful way to um, all the footnotes that people have complained about so much. In, in other words, you have to explain all this stuff for people that don't know it. But rather than slow the text up and say, oh, by the way, that was, and, and then he wrote, and then, oh, that's the one who, it's all at the bottom of the page. So if you don't like footnotes, don't read the footnotes. <laughs> one of my people are complaining about it. No one is holding a gun to your head. But we were talking about books. And this was the last time I read a theater book that I found really beguiling and, and amusing. And I know that from now on, the great stars, when they do their memoirs, are going to tell their publisher, I want that guy from the Times. <laughs> yeah, forget it. Everyone does this kind of thing once and never again. And Jesse has already paid his dues. So he's, all, he's moving on to other things. That's my last word. Thank you so much for being here. Yes. And David. Uh, Jeez. Well, I mean, I just want to like, you know, here's the book. And, you know, on the top, we have truth, beauty, freedom, love, the bohemian rallying cry, their motto. And, you know, uh, what can I say? I mean, that's um, those are big ideals to aspire to. But I think everybody should look into their lives and see, you know, how much truth, beauty, freedom and love they have and how much they can increase it and give it to others. You know, I mean, I. I certainly want that in my life as much as possible. And, and I'm, I feel very lucky and, and to have been on this panel with these wonderfully talented people and to, to be able to write about theater, which is the great love of my life, you know. Thank you. That's a really wonderful message to, to have. And so I'd love to sort of finally close out first by saying thank you to Richard for being such a great co-host and for giving me this opportunity to do this with you and on your show. And finally, to our wonderful panel of authors who agreed to join us today. And then lastly, to encourage everyone watching to go out and buy these specific books, but also to buy every new theater book that comes out because they all have something new and valuable to contribute. So thank you and have a great day, everyone. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.